episode 19 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. This time I'm talking about Mayo Method's best performance in the 1932 picture Vanity Street. Mayo Method never told a lie on screen. With every gesture and line delivery, she conveyed the truth to women. For the 1937 picture Marked Woman, Betty Davis went to great lengths to create realism by having her personal physician dress her wounds that the character sustained. All Mayo had to do to convince an audience that she had a long night as a sex worker was slouch, drag her heels, and sit down at a table slowly pouring out a can of beer. You know in your gut before she's had the first sip that she's bone-weary and burnt out from pleasing men. She was the antidote to the woman's picture fairy tale that every woman will meet a man worthy of her, that you could pick a man and be safe and have a happy ending. Mayo Method's characters on screen told women in the audience that men will use you up and throw you away. They will cheat and rob you. For every good guy taxi driver, like Pat O'Brien, that Mayo's friend Carol Lombard falls for in virtue, there are hundreds of toots, played by Jack LaRue. He lives the high life off the money Mayo makes doing sex work. Or like George Meeker in Vanity Street, who lives off Mayo's earnings from the stage. Mayo Method's characters always had a crisis of confidence that we never saw with other blonde bombshells like Harlow and Lombard. Mayo didn't present her allure as limitless, but rather showed its limitations, how glamour fades or it is easily replaced by a fresh new face. Mayo played roles where she referred to herself as past her prime when she was only 28 years old, like in Virtue with Carol Lombard or here in Vanity Street. She says, in virtue, I guess I'm just an old has-been, which always takes the wind out of me, that she's so young and already resigned herself to the trash heap. Maya was only 33 when she made Marked Woman with Betty Davis, when a mob boss examines her as though she were a racehorse for sale. He stops short of pulling her lip up to look at her teeth when he asks a pitiless rhetorical, kind of old, ain't you? and then follows it up with, I need young girls, the kind men go for in a hurry. Each time she was brought low on screen, she exhibited a deep reserve of strength. She could absorb the shabby treatment and not crumble. I'd like to think that she reassured women in the audience by letting them know that if the worst happened, they would pull through just like she did. No one was better at projecting disappointment with a woman's lot. Mayo's eyes could tell you that she was utterly gutted and distraught, but she was beyond the ability to summon tears. But Mayo was a babe. Dubbed the Portland Rosebud, she became a celebrated singer on Broadway when she was still just a teenager. She was voluptuous in an era of boyish silhouettes. With a face like a valentine, heart-shaped, and bow lips, Mayo's face blended Victorian daintiness with a hard-boiled flapper excess. Mayo was more zaftig than Mae West and had eyes sadder than Sylvia Sidney. Mayo Method perfected what became the signature stance of the 1930s, a slouch combined with a jutted pelvis. It's a pose that's sexy and yet disinterested. 
Mayo's swayed posture told you that she was ready for it, but then most men couldn't handle it, nor did they deserve it. In the only film where she took star billing, The Nightclub Lady, from 1932, she was killed off after a matter of minutes. That leaves you alone with Adolf Manju for far too long. If only he were the one bumped off and she was left with a pulse to solve the mystery. What a dirty trick. Even though she takes third billing in Vanity Street, Mayo seems like the star, and she's never looked better nor given a better performance. And the picture is a true gem. Vanity Street was written by Gertrude Purcell, who worked in Hollywood writing scripts from 1930 to 1950. Her other screenplays include Honor Among Lovers from 1931, a Dorothy Arzner picture starring Claudette Colbert, No More Orchids for Carol Lombard in 1932, Cocktail Hour for B.B. Daniels in 1933, and If You Could Only Cook for Jean Arthur in 1935, Destry Rides Again for Marlena Dietrich in 1939. She also wrote dialogue for Love Before Breakfast from 1936 and Stella Dallas in 1937. I've seen them all, and they're all fantastic and worth your time. Purcell's script portends various fortunes for women in 1932, with more clarity than a crystal ball. There are quarrens hopeful to receive a good dinner or a bottle of expensive perfume from spoiled college boys wearing tacky bearskin coats. One girl closes her night after working on stage all night dancing with her mother, who only permits her a glass of milk at the soda fountain counter because food turns to fat. Viewers also note abused wives who can only receive help when the husband makes too much noise and the disturbed neighbors ring police. Purcell fleshes out three stories in particular to show women what they might expect. In the lead story, Helen Chandler throws a brick at a druggist's window. She declares that she doesn't care about the consequences. She rationalizes that at least in jail, they feed you and she can finally get some sleep. Fired from her job selling hosiery, homeless, starved, she's run out of options. Charles Bickford plays a cop on the beat who gives her a break, feeds her, gives up his couch, and gets her a job in the Follies. When the cop seems resistant to romance, she accepts the invitation of a playboy Val French. The subplot tracks the downward slide of Fern Cavan, the folly star that Mayo plays. She's unhappy with the quality of the show after opening night and walks off the production. After a month absence, she returns to reclaim her lead in the show. She's been replaced. During all of this, her lover Val French, played by George Meeker, runs through her money. Seducing women is the only work he seems interested in. In the smaller plot, May Beatty plays Mrs. Dantry, a wealthy socialite, one of the many women who succumb to Val French's oily charm. Old enough to be his mother, she turns up at the drugstore, overstyled, with her barnet and a tight shellac of fussy curls. She leans into him, invites him home, and casually mentions that her husband's out of town. Instead of asking the matron for money, he blackmails her with the assistance from a local barfly. All three women are connected by Val's cruel design. With stark realism, Purcell's script argues that no matter their social status or income, women are vulnerable to predatory men. Mayo makes a great entrance in the picture as she's leaving the stage door on opening night. 
where she stops to berate a man for wasting her star power. As Fern Cavan, she declares that the Follies wouldn't exist without her, and no one steps in to say otherwise. When we first see her, she's draped in a feather boa over a satin wrap and a dark evening gown. She carries opera gloves and wears three diamond bracelets that each seem large enough to choke an elephant. As the diva, she quits and storms off with great fanfare, telling the stage director, I'll be a star when that show's rotting in the warehouse. In Mayo's next scene later that night, she's pacing her luxurious flat. You can now see the dress has a halter neck that plunges deep in front and even deeper in the back. She's doing that slouch and cocked pelvis pose. George Meeker's Val French is a parasite disguised as, as a gentleman in a top hat and tails. He half listens to Fern complain about shabby treatment from the producers, but like most leeches, he makes it all about himself. He says, find time for you to quit when I need dough. She replies, you've had the cream of my best years. Val picks up a book and shakes it. Fern snaps, I don't keep my money in books anymore. Hiding her money in books tells viewers that he's too lazy to read, just like he's too lazy to work for his money. Fern changes from her bias-cut gown into a dressing gown adorned with ostrich feathers. You couldn't call yourself a star of the stage in the 1930s without ostrich feathers in wardrobe rotation. Val, the louse, starts to work with the sweet talk. Mayo softens, as she no doubt did a million times when a man alternated between abuse and sex. It takes so little to win her over. She's so hungry for a soothing word. She needs reassurance that she's still beautiful, can still draw a crowd. Then she walks over to the large mirror on the wall, pulls it open, and reveals a safe. How symbolic. Her reflection leads to a supply of hidden cash. One makes the other possible. Women of the stage or screen always banked on their looks. Fern says that she doesn't feel safe investing her money, and who did in 1932? So she keeps it where she can see it. Although it's all she has to keep her from the performer's home, she peels off $2,000 that Val had asked for. It would have been cheaper to have him killed, but Fern's not ruled by good judgment when it comes to men. In her next scene, Mayo wears the best ensemble of the film and probably her whole career. It's simple, yet I can't recall seeing anything else like it. Columbia Pictures threw together a lot of bargain looks for this, but everything Mayo wears looks top drawer. Nearly everything Helen Chandler wears looks cheap and flimsy, like rayon that clings and doesn't breathe. How often do you ever see the supporting actress get a better wardrobe than the leading lady? I'm guessing Mayo is canny enough to hold out for better threads. Mayo's outfit for when she marches into the producer's office to demand the return of her star role after a four-week absence is a big wow. She wears a simple tailored blouse and skirt. Over it, though, is a mink bandolier that crisscrosses over her chest. She's locked and loaded with style ammunition. With a smart cap and clutch purse, she's as slender as a tulip stalk and the height of sophisticated fashion. I would wear this look until the, until the pelts were devoured by moths and fell off my body. On the wall of the producer's office, the camera lingers on a close-up of a framed glossy 8x10 photo of Fern Cavan in her showgirl regalia looking like a clone of Mae West. 
Before Mayo can march triumphant into the producer's office, the receptionist stops her and says that he's busy with a Miss O'Brien. Mayo stifles a sneer and demands to know who Miss O'Brien is. She's not fooled by the fake pronunciation gag. Sadly, viewers know before Mayo that she's about to meet her replacement. When the new star brushes past without noticing anyone in the room but the producer, she thanks him and kisses him goodbye full on the lips. That seals the deal. Mayo's face collapses. She registers abject despair without a tear, which is somehow more devastating than had she sobbed and screamed. If you have listened to a few of my podcasts, you already know that it's the underplay that knocks me out every time. Draw the viewer in. Don't beat us over the head with what a character feels. Make us feel it with you. Scenery chewing exhausts me, and after over-relying on it, where does an actor have to go? Mayo strips off the gimmicks and lives in that moment, that excruciating moment. The next time we see her, she clutches the phone as though her life depended on it. She rings up some dive bar to find Val. She wears a thick layer of greasy face cream and those wrinkle tape wings on her crow's feet, which she's really too young to have. But out of work and insecure, she needs solace from Val. Val's off catting around with Mrs. Dantry. Inside the rich matron's house, he tells her, take off your hat and straighten your hair so I can have the thrill of messing it up again. This guy has less charm than a heat rash. In another scene, he takes out Helen Chandler, who has something to prove when the cop resists building the relationship that's obvious to everyone but him. They sit in some nightclub. The camera shoots from behind them. On the center of the table is a little showgirl Cupid doll, a trinket from a nightclub concession or a street vendor, some little piece of tat that gets pushed on men to buy for their date. The doll that sits between Helen Chandler and George Meeker has on high heels, a satin trousers on long legs, and a little matching skirt. Her top is a cheap polka dot print. She has brassy platinum curls and a beret. She's a cheap showgirl, a dead ringer for the absent Fern Cavan. The doll topples over when the lovers run off. If you had any doubt that Val is a stinker, you'd be cured of that when later he demands sex from Helen Chandler and says as she attempts to leave, you knew what you were walking into. You're over seven. Oh dear. It's a special brand of monster that designates seven years old as the age of consent. I won't spoil the twists and turns of the plot. Seek it out. Helen Chandler, as the star of Vanity Street, isn't half as good as Mayo. You can see her acting a mile away. She tells you everything with her dialogue and almost nothing with her body or presence. Mayo had the face of a pre-code angel. She's hard-boiled yet vulnerable and, and dressed in a chic wardrobe. She never had it so good again in pictures as she does in Vanity Street. Now, I enjoy watching Humphrey Bogart on screen as much as anybody but I find the cult of St. Bogie tedious, if not woefully misguided, when it comes to the subject of Mayo method. Bogart's acolytes truncate Mayo's biography to a sad cautionary tale, a blip on the meteoric rise of his stardom. But as Louise Brooks noted in her insightful essay on Bogart, aside from Leslie Howard, no one did more to ensure his success than Mayo method. 
The worst critics ignore evidence of the domestic violence in their marriage, with claims that since Mayo participated in the violence, she liked it or had it coming. That old refrain that she pushed his buttons hasn't aged well. It sounds like victim blaming. Women in abusive relationships may meet violence with some of their own, but tiny little Mayo was never a physical match or equal to Bogart or any other man. The idea that she participated in the violence and therefore had it coming is repellent on every level. A battered woman may try to funnel her anguish into tough talk or action, but it never proves a safeguard, and she's always more vulnerable than any other man. Mayo deserved better. I'll leave you with an excerpt from Bogart, the biography from Anne Sperber and Eric Lacks. Since Bogart seldom showed the effects of alcohol and slurry speech or uncoordinated movement, the best test for telling whether he was sober or drunk was to watch his behavior. Sober, Alan Rivkin said, Bogart was great. Drunk, he was a dirty bastard. Cynthia Lindsay agreed. He was either perfectly charming or totally belligerent, but his belligerence was never against somebody who was either bigger or stronger or more mentally powerful. He would come in and be sweet and charming and then find someone who looked weak and defenseless and get him. Alan Vincent, a marvelous man who would win an Academy Award for Johnny Belinda in 1948, was often there. He was kind of delicate and homosexual, and Bogey would just go for him. He would say, why don't you stand up and defend yourself? And Alan didn't want to fight. But Mayo did, and the battle spilled out into the street so often that after time the neighbors tended to ignore them. One night, guests gathered at the Reinhardt's were brought to their feet by more than the usual commotion. Cynthia Lindsay gasped at the scene being played out on the Bogart roof, silhouetted in the light of the upstairs windows. We heard this ruckus, and there was Mayo with a noose around her neck, running across the top of the building, on a kind of balcony on the lower part of the roof. He was chasing her like a dog in a leash. Others remember Bogart yelling, I'm going to hang you. But no one seemed worried. In fact, Lindsay said, we were all laughing hysterically. Nobody had the feeling that anybody was really going to hurt anyone because Bogey was a chicken. In Mayo, Bogart had found someone eager to take up his challenge, perennially spoiling for a fight. But unlike her husband, she was quick to move from verbal to physical attack. Mayo may have been short, but she inherited her father's broad shoulders and thick neck. Her deft right-hand jab was probably from her father, too, and she was quick to use it without warning and with great force. To Alan Rivkin, Mayo was a tough broad and a jealous wife. He saw the couple at a dockside one day, waiting to be ferried to one of the gambling ships that moored outside the three-mile limit. Mayo caught Bogart looking at another woman, and she slugged him, and he fell into the water. On another occasion, Rivkin received a whispered phone call from Bogart asking him to come over immediately. He did and found his friend huddled beneath a long, winding staircase in the front hall. She's throwing bottles, Bogart told Rivkin from his crouch. With a witness present, Bogart thought it was safe to come out. As Rivkin watched, he crept upstairs, looking to the writer like some gangster in one of his own movies and making it to the landing. Whereupon, a door opened, and she reached out and slugged him on the head with a bottle. Such behavior was hardly unusual. 
In a small bistro in Laguna Beach, 50 miles south of Los Angeles, the novelist Niven Bush, Duel in the Sun, saw Bogart and a plumpish blonde lady whose pictures I'd seen. At the far end of the bar, quarreling and subdued tones. The woman was Mayo, and he watched as the quarrel grew more heated. When Bush turned away for a moment to talk with some friends, I heard the sounding slap that commanded attention throughout the floor. And I said, oh, Jesus, Bogey has hit this woman. He turned to look and saw that it was the opposite. Mayo had conked him with a backhanded swipe and knocked him from the bar stool. It was so funny. Bogart scrambled to his feet and after he took his seat at the bar, dabbed his head with ice water. By then the quarrel was over and Mayo had become quite solicitous. It was a familiar conclusion. Mayo was generally attentive after the damage was done. Their fights usually ended in bed, Mary Baker said. And Bogart told an interviewer at the time, I love a good fight, so does Mayo. We have some first-rate battles. Bogart's friend, the sculptor and actress Henrietta Kay, who had known the Bakers in New York and visited them in California, remembers sitting in a garden swing on Sunday afternoons watching their famous friends. The Bogarts were always there, along with great many writers like Nunnally Johnson and that crowd. Bogey and Mayo would get very drunk, and the group would egg them on. It was part of a big joke, in the way that bear baiting is a sport. To the young woman, it had all the earmarks of ritual dance, something to do with their sex life, because they were obviously hung up on each other. But whatever the sexual benefits of their behavior, instead of this being a case of mutual love, it was more a matter of mutual destruction. Bogart called her sluggy, bragged about ducking punches, and joked about living dangerously. It was much darker than that. His friends were to call him an abused husband. In reality, he contributed his share of mistreatment. Gloria Stewart and her husband were with the Bogarts amidst a packed house one evening at Slapsy Maxie's, former light heavyweight boxing champion. Maxie Rosenblum's club on Wilshire Boulevard, which was famous for its comedy reviews and billed as the laughing spot of California. As usual, Mayo and Bogart got into a row that escalated until he told her, you say that once more, Sluggy, and I'm going to clip you. Well, I'm saying it once more, she responded. Stewart watched as Bogart immediately leaned over and pushed her into the next table, really whammed her. To me, it wasn't funny. I got up and said something like, you son of a bitch, and went over to pick up Mayo. Of course, the whole place fell silent. And he turned to Arthur and he said, well, wouldn't you have hit her? Arthur said, not necessarily. In the meantime, she was crying. The entire place was silent as I picked her up. Then I led her out, followed by the two men. But she always had a black eye or a wounded cheek or something and dark glasses. They really had a physical relationship. The stories of the Bogarts drinking and domestic violence rapidly became part of the Hollywood lore of the time. They were wholly suited to the tough and tumble screen image, Bogart dodging flying bottles, Bogart locked out of the house, spending the night sleeping on the lawn. The news media found it all colorful and amusing because the behavior was understandable, Rivkin said. A real man of the era was a hearty drinker. Somebody who went out and didn't get drunk was some sort of fairy. But Bogart and Mayo's drinking and fighting were less an amusing mating dance than a matter of a pair in desperate need of help. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode 20 when I talk about Gloria Swanson and Sadie Thompson from 1928.
Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tend 